Good morning, church. Happy Sabbath. I am so glad to be back with you all another week. How many of us had a good week? Amen? Okay, a few hands, a few hands. That's good. How many of us had a tiring week? Okay, that's more hands. Okay. <laughs> amen, amen. But I'm glad that even so, you guys chose to worship with us this morning. Amen? And John, I don't know where you went, but never in a million years, if I had a million guesses, would I have known that you could play the trumpet? That was, where you, yeah, that was, an, thank you so much for that. That was a big blessing. God bless you. May you continue to use that for God's honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Um, well, uh, friends, I wanted to share a little bit more. We finally made it to chapter 3 of the book of Jonah. How many of us have been reading along, studying a little bit this week? Okay, a few of us. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> it's a very well-known story. So even if you haven't been, you know, reading along, I think we all know the, the gist of it. We're going to dive in a little bit more this morning and so see what the word of the Lord has for us this morning. So let, let us pray together and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much once again for the blessings that you have given to us this week. Lord, some of us have had great weeks. We have come, we have gone to the mountaintops, we have seen incredible things, we have enjoyed our time there. And Lord, others of us have had a trying and tiring week. But even so, Lord, we come before you uh, and we long to worship in your presence. And Lord, we long to see you with us this morning, especially in this moment as we open your word. So please be with us. Be with those that are watching us through the live stream. May you bless them wherever they are as well. And we look forward to when they can join us here in person as well, Lord. So thank you so much for just being with us. We praise you. And this I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to share a little bit. Um, on July 8th, and I'm going to step out of the pulpit a little bit. Um, just to get a little bit closer to you guys this morning. But on July 8th of the year 1741, a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most powerful sermons that anyone had ever heard in Enfield. And it's become a very famous sermon. I don't know how many of us have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards before. Right, you right? Okay, good, good. And so it was a time during the Great Awakening where there was so much revival happening across the land. So many people were turning to God and just this new awakening for spiritual things was happening. And he decided to preach this sermon to the people. And it was one of the most transformative sermons that had ever happened. The title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Mercy, Mercy right? I'm sure that many of us have maybe heard this message. I remember the first time I heard this sermon. I was driving from Southern Adventist University. I was visiting my family in Texas. And just on the drive there, I decided to hear this sermon. And my goodness, I had another almost like awakening myself there in the car. It is a powerful, powerful sermon. Now, what made it unique was the approach that he used in capitalizing on the wrath of God, and the dangers of being someone unconverted to the Christian faith. So if you hear this sermon, there is a lot of, I guess what we could summarize as fire and brimstone speak, right? You know, it's a lot of words, a lot of strong language against someone that is just maybe on the fence, has never given their life to Jesus, and he just goes hard on them, you know, letting them know what exactly awaits them, if they don't give their lives to Jesus. 
People became so afraid of this angry God that they would convert on the spot upon hearing this message just to avoid the fiery wrath of this God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was uh, starting my ministerial training, right, and I was at Southern Adventist University, and then I was in Michigan, and then I, you know, started in the field, one of the first things they taught us in preaching class and in evangelism class was that when you're trying to reach someone for Jesus, the first thing you don't tell them is that they're going to hell. All right, that is, if, there's, if you can say anything else except that, don't start with that. But for some reason, that was Jonathan Edwards' approach. He would share to anyone that if they had, did not give their hearts to Jesus, they were going to hell. And that a fiery judgment is what awaited them. And for some reason, it worked for Jonathan Edwards. And for some reason, it worked for Jonah as well. In Jonah chapter 3, we come back to this runaway prophet. The last time we left him, right, he was in the belly of a fish. He had become repentant. He had become uh, just, he, he felt, you know, that he needed to come back to God. And so he repents of the mistake that he had made of trying to run away. And he prays to God and miraculously, mercifully, God hears this prayer. And Jonah chapter 3 verse 1 or ending uh, chapter 2, you know, we find that the Lord spoke to the fish and it threw Jonah up right there on the shores of Nineveh, where he should have been all along. And we come to chapter 3, verse uh, 1 through 3, and it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Now we left him, right, in the belly of the fish. And so, once again, the Bible says that the word of the Lord comes back to Jonah a second time. And it tells him the same mission. It gives him the same thing to do. It says, go to Nineveh and call out against it. Now this time, Jonah has a little bit more experience right in disobeying he says okay i'm not going to go down that route again so what does jonah do he goes he gets up and he goes to nineveh this time the journey took about a month from where he was to get to nineveh to the gates of nineveh and in this and it, when he arrives at nineveh he begins to prepare to preach one of the biggest sermons of his career so far now, before we get into what that message was, I want to note here that the Lord, that the Bible says that the word of the Lord came back to Jonah a second time. Now, how many of us own our own businesses here this morning? Like you have your own business, you have workers underneath you, you hire, things like that. Okay, we have a few people. Let's say you hire someone, right? And when, after you hired him, you see that that person has become just unwilling to come to work. Right? They don't want to come to work, they're, they're late, they're grumpy, they don't want to be there. How long would that person last under your employment? Not, not very long, right? Maybe you do give them, you know, you talk to them, hey, you know, we're, 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 a, team, you know, we're a team players here, you know, we need you to, to come to work on time. You know, uh, I know I'm not the, the most exciting boss, but you know, you have to come to work. Right? Maybe you have a conversation like that, right? But if they keep going in that same attitude of like, I just don't want to be here, then sooner or later you're going to grant their wish and they're not going to be there anymore. 
right? Jonah had displayed an attitude that he did not want to be following what God had wanted him to do. He did not want to go to Nineveh. So anyone else, after, you know, disobeying God, you would think that God would be like, okay, you know what? This prophet doesn't want to listen to me right now. Maybe I'm going to leave him alone. Maybe I'll leave him in the belly of the fish a few more months, you know, and, and you know, I'll move on to someone else. But God doesn't do that. It says that he comes back to Jonah a second time. And he says, I want you to go to Nineveh and call out against it. Now, the reason why God comes back to Jonah, we get into that reason a little bit more in chapter 4. And I'm going to make you guys wait a little bit for chapter 4. Because like we said, you know, next week we have Campion. And the week after that is finally when I'll get to be back with you guys again, I believe. So we're going to wait a little bit to get into that reason. Because that reason is powerful. There's a reason why God was coming back to Jonah in particular to, for this particular mission. All right. But for now, I just wanted to, to leave it at the point that we serve a God who gives second chances. Amen? Amen? We serve a God that no matter the attitude that we have displayed in different circumstances of our lives, he will come back to us a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth time. Because that is the God that we serve. He is someone that wants to continually pursue us until he has us in his grasp. Jonah was persisted, persistently pursued by God who, won nothing, who wanted nothing more than to have a relationship with him. God pursued the city of Nineveh because he was trying to reach out to them and he was trying to save them. When the Lord has his sight set on us, there is nothing that will stop him from finally reaching us. Amen. That, that is such an amazing news. It doesn't matter where you, what your life story has been so far, the dark places that you have been, the Lord is pursuing you this morning. Now... I'm reminded of another disciple that was also pursued relentlessly by God. And I love his story, the story of Saul turned Paul. Now, when we read about Saul in the book of Acts, we read some pretty strong things about him. In Acts chapter 9, we read his entire testimony, and we read that Saul was one of the most zealous uh, religious people of his time. He wanted nothing more than to serve God, but in his misguided way of serving God, he had gone into this place where he had believed that the disciples of Jesus were the bad guys. And so Saul, in his misguided way of doing things, he began to pursue after Christians and disciples of Jesus. He threw them in jail. He would, not, not only men, but also women and children as well. I want you to think about that for a moment. Many of us, you know, that have your wife next to you, your kids next to you. Imagine if in those times you were there and Saul found out who you were, that you were a disciple of Jesus, and he threw your entire family into prison. A lot of those families didn't make it. A lot of them died in prison and in really horrible conditions. So when you come to Saul, and if you were just to ask the question, how much blood does this particular person have on his hands? You would see that it was dripping red because of all the deaths that he was responsible for. 
And yet we find in Acts chapter 9 verse 15 the following words from God, the King of Kings, speaking to Ananias. And he says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Again, if you are the boss of a company and you have someone that just has the worst track record imaginable, not only the worst track record, but he is responsible for even taking the lives of many other people. And that person's resume comes before you and all of that is written for you to see. I don't think the first thing that you would say is you're hired. When we look at Saul... And we, and we see his track record and everything that he had done so far up until that point. I don't think that we would say, this is a disciple of Jesus. This can be a preacher for Jesus. I think we would disqualify him very quickly. But when God looked at him, when God looked at who he could be through the grace and power of his name... He saw an instrument in his hands. He saw someone that he could transform, someone that he can just mold. And it is by God's grace and mercy that Saul became Paul, one of the greatest preachers and one of the reasons that we are here today. Jonah was God's chosen instrument for this particular message to Nineveh. And he had his reasons. Like I said, we're going to get into that in chapter 4. But you and I today are instruments in the master's hands. And he will use us according to his will for his kingdom and for his glory. It doesn't matter what we have done. Because what matters is what we can do and what we can be by God's grace and mercy. By his power working in us, we can be more than the mistakes we have made in this life. So God is a God of second chances, and he gives Jonah a second chance. Go to this city, preach against it. And so that's what Jonah does. Verses 4 through 5, we see Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40, day, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So as God's instrument, we see Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh and he begins to preach against it. Now many have speculated, you know, what this particular message sounded like. And honestly, it's one of the questions I would like to ask God when we get to heaven. Like, what was it that he said to the people of Nineveh. What, what was his exact wording? What was his introduction? What, what was his main points? You know, did he break it down? What was his conclusion? Did, you know, what did he say to these people that everyone believed God and had a transformative, repentant experience and came back to his presence? Preachers today have enough trouble trying to convince half the church to become repentant. You know, I want to know what Jonah said to convince a whole city to come back to God. Now, a lot of them, you know, have speculated. Maybe it was a message of grace. Maybe it was a message of, you know, love and mercy. Anyone who has any experience preaching would probably say, you know, that that would be the best approach to take. You know, tell them that God loves them. Tell them that God is, is merciful and he's willing to save them. Tell them that message. But Jonah had no choice but to preach the message that God had already given to him. And the message that God had given to him to say to Nineveh was, 
It will be overthrown in 40 days. It was a message of God's wrath. If you don't change the way that you are doing things, then I will destroy this city in 40 days. That was the message. That was the sermon. And Jonah preaches it. Now, remember when we studied a little bit about Nineveh and the identity that it had. It was a city known for violence. Timothy Keller, in his book, it's a book titled The Prodigal Prophet. It's a very good book. I encourage you to read it if you have uh, a few moments this, this week or later. It's, it's very short. But he writes about Nineveh in the following manner. He, he shares in two parts. He says, violence is the arbitrary infringement of human rights. Of such social injustice, Nineveh was blatantly guilty. Assyrian imperialism, cruelty, and social injustice were condemned by other Hebrew prophets as well. That's what Nineveh was known for. And later on, he continues in the next page. He says, as we have seen, the Assyrian Empire was unusually violent. It slaughtered and enslaved countless people and oppressed the poor. We're talking about Nineveh. I don't know if something else comes to your mind, but we're talking about Nineveh. It was renowned for its injustice, imperialism, and oppression of other countries. Yet the text shows that the impulse towards exploitation and abuse was also eating away at the fabric of Nineveh's society. It wasn't merely that the Assyrians as a nation were oppressing other nations, but individuals were violent towards one another, poisoning social relationships. And the city was at a breaking point where it could not continue in that manner for much longer. It was a place of violence and it was known as such. Yet it is to this city that the Lord calls Jonah to preach about the coming wrath. I remember when I was, uh, before I, I went to Southern Adventist University... I was really early on just starting to explore what the call to ministry looked like. And, and I was blessed that my pastor was a very positive mentor in my life. And so I was able to ask him all kinds of questions. I'm sure he got tired of all my questions. But I asked, I remember one moment in particular that I've never forgotten. We were at a camporee and, you know, I got a chance to sit next to him. And I just started asking him questions. And one of the questions I asked him, I asked him, uh, if you ever had the chance to preach in Hollywood before all of the movie stars, before all of the Illuminati leaders, if you, you know, believe that, believe that stuff. If you had a chance to just preach to all of them, if you had them in as one stadium, right, and just had them all together, and you were the speaker, what would you say? And I remember asking him that question. I'll never forget his answer. My, my, my thinking was that, you know, I would probably go along a little bit of, you know, Jonah and maybe Jonathan Edwards, you know, preach a message of wrath, you know, and just, you know, just go at it. And, you know, if they don't change, you know, this is what's going to happen and things like that. And I'll never forget what my pastor told me. He said, I would preach Jesus and just Jesus. And that has always stuck with me. Because if there is anything that has the power to transform... It is the message of love and of Jesus Christ. I was expecting some complicated theological answer, but that was the answer he gave me. And it's something that I've still carried with me ever since that moment. And so anytime I preach, I do my best to preach Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, coming up to a city known for its violence and its sinfulness, 
Many of us would probably take that message of hope and love, right? And, and yet Jonah chose to preach a message of what God had in mind, a message of wrath. Now, I have been wrestling with this all week. I have been wrestling with the fact it, or with the question, is there a place for the message of God's wrath in our preaching today? Right, because honestly, if you if you think about it, like I said, you know, when I was going through college, when I was going through training and things like that, the message of God's wrath was something that you you preached if if you were sure that everyone in your audience were members of the Seventh Adventist Church and they were used to hearing that message, right? You don't. If you have a, a number of visitors and friends with you, you you stay away from that. You know, you don't go to preach that message. But yet, when we read the Bible, when we read the, the Word of God, you look at the Old Testament, right? And you have instances of God's wrath, the book of Jonah in particular. You have messages where you see the wrath of God being preached, being, being shared. And you come to the New Testament, and you have message of, of God's love. Now, some, you know, some people would say, oh, those are two different gods. But it's the same God. It's the same one. So in a way, when we look at our relationship with God, we have to kind of reconcile that there is a, a, an aspect of love and mercy and grace, but then there is also this aspect of, of judgment and wrath, and that is actually good news. This is kind of what I, was, what I was wrestling with this week. It is important for us to know that our God is not just a God of mercy, but also a God of justice. It is important for us to realize that we do serve a God who does not let any injustices slide by. I don't know if you, uh, one of the things that I like, uh, I, I, I enjoy doing is I like looking at court cases, you know, and sometimes on YouTube they share those clips, you know, they record it, they live stream and things like that. And, and so sometimes I've tuned into those court cases, just to kind of see, you know, what the proceedings are like. Um, very dry. Sometimes very boring. <laughs> Sometimes hours. There is a whole legal process that I will not even begin to try to understand. But have you ever sat through one of those court proceedings only to realize, you know, you see the gravity of the things that the person has done, the crimes they've committed, and only to come out the other side at the judgment. And because of some technicality or something like that, the guy may either get off scot-free or he doesn't serve the time that we think they should have served, right? And, and, and so there's a feeling that rises up within us that we start to see, you know what, that was an injustice. It hits even closer to home when you see cases of, that involve children and kids and young people, innocence, right? Sometimes you think, you know, well, adults, you know, they had, they had some chance to live. But, but children are so innocent. They had, no, they had no fault in the matter. And when someone commits a crime against them, there's a verse in the Bible, I have to find it for you next time. But I, I believe, you know, God says sometimes, you know, God, God says, you know, it would be better to just hang a millstone around their neck, around anyone that commits such crimes against little children. Because it's an injustice. And in our world, there are going to be many moments, I'm sorry to say, but there's going to be many moments where we're, where we're going to see injustice happen. People will not be punished according to the crimes that they did. They will get off free, they will, they will serve a short time, and they will get off and they will join the community as if nothing happened. And that's what happens in our world, that's what happens in our community. But, and this is where God's justice comes into play. We, it is important for us to realize that even if human governments and human institutions may let those injustices slide by, our God, who is a God of justice, will not do so. When he passed before Moses, 
He told Moses, you know, Moses, you know, exclaimed, God, you are a God of mercy and compassion. And God told him, yes, I am. But I am also a God that punishes sin. And that is where we have to realize that that is good news for us. Because it is important, especially when those injustices happen to us and in our lives, it is important for us to realize that though they might escape human judgment here, they will not escape divine judgment with God. Amen? And so Jonah came to this city known for its violence. And they were known for doing very many bad things. You know, the rich trampled over the poor. The poor retaliated with crime. The middle class would cheat one another. And this was all breaking down their society. And they needed God's judgment to take place. The wrath of God is necessary for us. And, and this was something I was wrestling with. But I came to, the, to, to realize, uh, one of the commentaries shared, the wrath of God is necessary for us to see how evil and dangerous injustice really is. If, ev if in every instance of injustice, God stepped in, you know, to pass divine judgment and to let those things, you know, resolve, and, and he lifted his hand to, to stop all those injustices, we would be robbed of the opportunity to actually see with our own eyes the full disintegrative effects that injustice has on our society. If we didn't have those moments of injustices, we would not be able to see the full picture of how evil and dangerous sin actually is. And so God created this world to be good and perfect. And when we see the full workings of sorrow and pain, and, he, and sometimes he, he allows us to see all of that, and he allows us to see injustices, then we see the true and complete consequences of sin. And we come back to God and we ask him, God, you need to step in and save us from all of this. Evil and injustice in the world are the expression of God's wrath and how much he actually hates and despises evil. And I'd even add that the wrath of God is necessary for us to trust that no injustice will go unpunished. No matter what happens in this world, nothing, they cannot escape God's eyes and they cannot escape his wrath. Now we know that God is a God of compassion, but also that he is a punisher of sin and evil and injustice. The story of Nineveh in the book of Jonah is a testament to this. He abhorred injustice of this city so much that he called this prophet to speak against what was happening in this city. Now, Jonah preaches this message of God's wrath and against the injustice of this city, fully expecting that the message would fall on deaf ears. But what exactly happens next? Verses 6 through 9 tells us the following. Uh, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh uh, by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither men nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Maybe. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In a surprising turn of events, the people believed the word of the Lord. And a rampant wave of reconciliation and repentance moved across the entire city. 
from the greatest of them to the least of them, from the richest person to the poorest person, to everyone in the middle class, from the king all the way to the lowest person, and even the animals. Everyone began to reconcile with each other, not only for the violence that they had caused in the past, but from the violence that they had been planning in that very moment before they received this message. They repented and they turned away from all of that. And they mourned for their sin and they repented of all the evil that they had ever done or were about to do. And all of this for the chance that maybe the God who was preaching against them would change his mind and save them. I don't know if you've ever been there. In a place in your life where you're just hanging on by a maybe. Where you've placed all your hopes and dreams upon maybe if I do this, maybe there's a chance that things will work out. You've hung all your hopes, your dreams, and future on this one possibility, on this one maybe, right? And sometimes it feels like a really big gamble, right? And that's where Nineveh, Nineveh was right now. They did all of this repenting. They did all of this turning. They did all of this demonstration that they were sorrowful for what they had done on the chances that maybe this God would turn away from what he was about to do. And what does the Bible say happened? Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen? The people of this city may have turned from their evil ways, right, in order to avoid this destruction. Now, I wanted to, um, to stay on this point for a little bit, because we know that simply... Changing behavior is not enough to earn salvation, all right? We're in, we're in Jonah's time. We're in the Old Testament, right? This is before Jesus has come. The, in order for someone to, to enter into that salvation, into that covenant with, with God, they have to accept that atoning sacrifice. They have to, you know, go through the process of the circumcision and things like that. And, and, and so, but the thing that the Bible says, we don't see any of that happening with the city of Nineveh. We don't see them going and entering into a covenant relationship with God that now they're going to follow after him. We don't even see any word that they abandoned their idols, the other gods that they serve. We don't see any of that type of transformation. All we see is that the evil that they had been planning, the evil that they had done, they were about to do, they turned from that evil and they repented of that. But that was enough for the God of mercy to have pity on them and save them. I shared last week, whoever walks towards God one step, God runs towards them too. All right? And this is an amazing thing that I want us to stay on as well. They may not have, uh, they may not have done all of those things into, to fully enter into covenant with God, but they made an effort. They had begun to change just a little bit. And the Lord sees this and he decides to change his mind. We don't see the extreme take place, right? And now in, many, in, in other stories, we do see that, you know, Saul becoming Paul, for example, is one of those. We see in other places the extreme happening, right? We see a person has an experience with God. They turn and they completely do a 180 and they change their lives. And now they're all for Jesus. They're all going after him, right? We see those transformations take place. Some of us have had that happen to us as well. Nineveh wasn't like this. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes the change has to be gradual. Sometimes it has to be little by little. And that is exactly what is happening here as well. 
I think that God was using this experience, calling attention to the consequences of their injustice, to move the heart needle of Nineveh just a little bit and bring them to a closer point where one day he could reach out to them and invite them into a covenant relationship with him. And it's the same thing that God does with each one of us. Sometimes we're not ready for that dramatic change in our lives. Sometimes we're not ready to take on that full role of being disciples of Jesus from one day to the next. Maybe we aren't ready to preach or to lead churches or to be elders or to be leaders of two or three different departments in the church. And maybe that's all too much change and it's too fast for us. And the Lord knows this. Because the Bible says that he knows the number of hairs that we have on each of our heads. He knows us so intimately. He knows what we can handle, what we are capable of. And so maybe all of that is just too much for some of us. But he encourages us and he moves the needle just a little bit. And maybe we just start to pray a little bit more during the week. Maybe we start to pick up the Bible instead of one time uh, a week. Maybe we start to pick it up two or three times a day to read it just a little bit. Maybe we start to, to go to, to church instead of a couple times a month. Maybe we start to go a little bit more frequently. And it is that gradual change as we come closer and closer to his presence where God is just preparing us, moving our needle just a little bit until we get to that place. Before we know it, we see the Lord calling us to a saving relationship with him. And that is why Jonah's response in chapter 4 is so heartbreaking. Because he was so set on the destruction of this people that he missed the opportunity to work with God and continue to build Nineveh in this process. Imagine if Jonah, instead of being so upset by the decision to repent, imagine if he was praising God along with them. Imagine if he decided, you know what, I'm going to stay here a few months because I see the Spirit of the Lord moving. I'm going to stay here a few months. I'm going to teach these people more about God's love and His mercy and, and His compassion. And I'm going to show them what it means to be in a relationship with this God. Imagine the transformation that would have taken place in this city had Jonah put aside his pride and decided to work with his people. He could have continued to teach them more, and they could have seen God working even more mightily upon their hearts. When we finish the final chapter in the book of Jonah, we're going to see a little bit more into the, the heart issues that are happening for Jonah as things come full circle. But for now, let's finish with the following. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says the following. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Amen? Praise the Lord. You need to understand that the Lord wants all of us to be saved. It is not in His desire, it is not in His nature to see any of His children perish. If there's a maybe, that they might turn from their evil ways and choose Him. Amen. Years ago... Jesus Christ hung all of his plans, all of his hopes and dreams on a maybe for you and me. He decided that he would enter, uh, even though the humanity had chosen a path of sin, even though they had been so steeped in, in, in sin and degradation, he decided that he would enter into our world on the chance that maybe some of us would choose to follow him. And, he, and he, he completed that mission all the way up to the cross, all the way through the resurrection. And he is still working in our midst today. 
offer the chance that maybe we'll choose him. I remember uh, a story that I heard a few years ago. A young man, a teenager, decided that he didn't want to be at home anymore. Right? He decided that the rules and things like that, curfews and things like that, were just too much for him to handle. And he wanted to do life on his own. So, what does he do? He decides to run away. And he runs away from home. And he says to his parents in a letter, I have decided to run away. I am sorry, but I just can't take it anymore. I need and I want to experience life on my own. So that's what he does. He gets up, he packs what little belongings he has, and he leaves home to experience life as much as possible. Now, I don't know if you've gone through life just a little bit, but life can be cruel sometimes, and life can be difficult. I remember when uh, my wife and I got married, and I remember um, a few years after, I think, uh, it, was, it was the year that I turned 25. One of the things that I was most excited about was that I was no longer have to pay the car rental tax for being under the age of 25. All right, because if you're under 25, they add like an extra $100, $200 to your rental. And so sometimes, you know, that, that gets up there in price. And so I was really excited by that, right? And so that's when I was like, okay, I think I've reached a little bit more of adulthood if this is what I'm excited about. <laughs> this young man experienced life away from home. And he ran into troubles, he ran into hardships, he ran into difficult situations that he could not handle. Life beat him up quite a bit. And he came to the realization, if I was home, this would never have happened. And so he decides to write a letter. And he writes a letter to his parents and he says, you know what, I am so sorry. I want to come home. I want to be back with you all and I want to be part of the family. If you would have me, I'm going to get on the bus on this date. And if you would have me, I want you to tie a little white flag on the mailbox so that I will know that you are okay with me coming back home. And if, I, and if I don't see that white flag, then I'll understand and I'll just keep going on my way. I understand, you know, it's the consequences of my own actions. So he gets on the bus. The day arrives. He gets on this bus and he begins his journey back home. Now, as he's nearing his house, he becomes too nervous and too scared of what he might see. He realizes he can't handle seeing if the white flag is not there and having that memory in his mind imprinted for the rest of his life. So he, tells to the, so he turns to the person next to him, seated on that bus, and he says, Can you do me a favor? As we pass by this house, can you look at the mailbox and see if there's a little white flag on there? If there is, please tell me, and I'm going to get down right here. And so that's what happens. He gets near, they get nearer and nearer to the house, and his friend, the, the person that's next to him, uh, you know, tell, you know he's, he's looking, he's looking at the mailbox, he finally sees it. And so the young person asks him, What do you see? And the person tells him, well, I don't see a white flag on the mailbox. But what I do see is a whole bunch of white all over the front lawn and all over the front of the house. What the parents had done when they received the letter of their son that he wants to come back home, they didn't just tie a little white flag on the mailbox. They took out every single sheet and pillowcase, the, every single white thing that they had in the house, and they threw it all in the front of the house in a message to his son that we are more than willing for you to come home. You belong with us. The Lord, in his mercy and love and grace and compassion, and even in his wrath, 
He extends white sheets for all of us, arms outstretched on that cross. And he says, I am more than willing for you to come home. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how much life has beat you up. It doesn't matter what you might be facing right now. The Lord is more than willing to save. And he is able to save to the utmost whoever is willing to come to him. How many of us want to come to the Lord this morning? Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessing of your mercy and your grace. Thank you so much, God, for the message of Jonah and that there exists stories like the city of Nineveh. That, Lord, even when they take small moments, small steps towards you, uh, as imperfect as that might be, because we're human and we make mistakes. Even when we're trying to fix things, we make mistakes, Lord. But you see that effort and, Lord, you decide to be there with us. And you decide to walk alongside us. And you decide to to just strengthen us in our journey with you. All for the maybe that we will enter into your gates one day. And Heavenly Father, I just want to pray a blessing upon every single person here today. Upon every single person that is watching this live stream. Heavenly Father, I just pray that, Lord, our prayer together right now is, Lord, we want to come home. No matter what our life may look like right now, Lord, we want to be in your presence. And just bring us there, Lord. Whatever you need to do in our lives to make that possible, whatever change you need to, to, to just bring about, Lord, just do it. Because we want to be with you forever. And we want to be exactly the kind of disciples that you want us to be. Bless our time together, Lord. Bless our church. Bless our leadership. Bless the church and business meeting that we're having this evening. May your will and your spirit be ever present with us. This I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.